0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday Morning Message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty.
1: Psalm 105. It's a rather lengthy psalm, but it reviews all that God did for His people Israel and says, praise the Lord, which is what they ought to have done and which is what we ought to do. So let's stand Turn to Psalm 105. O oh, give thanks to the Lord call upon his name make known his deeds among the peoples sing to him sing praises to him tell of all his wondrous works glory in his holy name let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice seek the Lord and his strength seek his presence continually Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When they were few in number, of little account, and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account. Saying, "'Touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. "'When he summoned a famine on the land "'and broke all supply of bread, "'he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, "'who was sold as a slave. "'His feet were hurt with fetters, "'his neck was put in a collar of iron, "'until what he had said came to pass. "'The word of the Lord tested him. "'The king sent and released him. "'The ruler of the people set him free.' He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. Then Israel came to Egypt, Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. He sent Moses his servant and Aaron whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them and miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made the land dark. They did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke and there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout their country. He gave them hail for rain and fiery lightning bolts throughout their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of their country. He spoke, and the locusts came, young locusts without number, which devoured all the vegetation in their land and ate up the fruit of their ground. He struck down all the firstborn in their land, the first fruits of all their strength. Then he brought out Israel with silver and gold, and there was none among his tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them had fallen upon it. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light by night. They asked, and he brought quail, and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock, and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river, for he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing, And he gave them the lands of the nations, and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil, that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord.
2: I hope by this point in the book of Galatians, and we are starting in chapter 6 this morning, but I hope that by this point you have some sense of Paul's teaching that the entirety of the law is fulfilled in loving your neighbor. Sacrificial love is the fulfilling of the law, so much so that Jesus himself said, that the two great commandments were that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and that you would love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said, on these two commands hangs the whole of the law and the prophets. It all can be boiled down to that. And so Paul, in dealing with the Judaizers who have come to Galatia, and tried to get these Gentile believers, these already blood-bought believers, these spirit-filled believers, in order to get them to be more Jewish. They wanted them to keep the law and to be circumcised. And so Paul's argument culminates in saying... It is love that is the fulfillment of the law. You don't need to go and do the law. And then he lists all the acts, the deeds of the flesh. And the deeds of the flesh are so carnal, so fleshly, so sinful, that they can do nothing but condemn you. And they certainly can't be the means by which you justify yourself or save yourself. So instead, he says, you would walk by Faith. You would walk by the Spirit, and then he tells you what the deeds of the Spirit are, and that faithful, loving, long-suffering kindness to one another is the satisfaction and fulfillment of the entirety of what the law was requiring. The law, external to you, could not get you to do the things that the law demanded, But the Spirit of God taking up residence in you will most naturally conform you so that you are able to do the things that the law required of you so that you are doing them internally outward instead of externally trying to do them inward. Tablets of stone telling you how bad you are can never make you better. The Spirit of God inside you Causing you to walk by the Spirit and to walk in sacrificial love is the satisfaction of the entirety of the law, and only God can change you from the inside out. That seems to be sort of the summation of Paul's argument so far. But then in chapter six, as he's wrapping up this letter, and it is my intention to take two weeks to wrap up the letter. So if you have a preference about which book we go to next, let it be known. Send me an email, because I'm settling that debate right now. In chapter 6, then, he's really going to put shoe leather on all of that stuff I just said. I just talked about walking by the flesh or walking by the spirit, in a very conceptual way, but then Paul is going to make it very real. He's going to tell you how you walk out this spiritual life. And it has to do with not only being concerned about the things of God, walking by the dictates and the sound doctrine that Paul teaches, But it also has to do with just very realistic day-to-day things that you can do for each other, to look out for each other, to take care of each other. Paul is very, very pragmatic. He started out very conceptual, and he ends saying, just take care of each other. Look out for one another. At the very end of chapter 5, he talked about those who belong to Christ Jesus And how they have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live by the spirit, then let us also walk by the spirit. And the first thing he mentions among people who are walking by the spirit is the lack of ego, the lack of boasting and pride, the lack of self-centeredness the lack of the sort of narcissism that is raging through the world these days, that you would put away your self-centeredness and take care of other people. This is very typical of Pauline language, that you should not think more of yourself than you really ought to. As he says in the book of Philippians, that you would regard others as better than yourself. And that you would look on the things of others rather than worrying about your own things. So the very first thing he mentions in verse 26 is, let us not become boastful. Let us not be challenging each other. And let us not be envying one another. Instead, this is how we ought to act. Chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, by the way, I will tell you, it is fair to also translate that, brethren, if a man is caught by any trespass, if the sinfulness in his mind, in his flesh, finally engages him and he is caught by that trespass, The natural tendency of boastful people, the natural tendency of challenging people, is to look at a person who has fallen in his weakness, has done something wrong, someone who has not lived up to the ideal or the standard. The natural fleshly inclination, the natural sinful proclivity, is to point at them and say, I see what you did. I caught you. And that means inherently I'm better than you because I can see in you that you did something wrong. And that is in all of us and rages online because we all just have the natural proclivity when we see somebody fallen to point at them. You see it all the time in the press. It's really interesting to watch people build up sports stars, or rock stars, or actors, or famous people, and then just tear them down. That seems to be what the sport is. You build them up, you build them up, and then you rip them down as fast and hard as you can. Did somebody say Trump? I didn't. We are told to disregard that natural inclination and instead, if we see a man caught in a trespass, in a sin, we see somebody doing something genuinely wrong, we're talking about a believer here, then you who are spiritual, you who are walking by the spirit, you who are not walking by the flesh, well then you restore such a one in a spirit of meekness and a spirit of gentleness. Now, why would Paul say this to the Galatians in particular? Well, because the Judaizers had caught the Galatians in what they thought was a trespass. You believe in Christ, but if you're truly going to be gods, you need to be circumcised, and you need to keep the law, and you need to do some stuff in your flesh literally and figuratively. You need to do some fleshly stuff. Paul's attitude is exactly opposite that. Paul's attitude is, if you see someone who is in a trespass, rather than confronting them, rather than challenging them, rather than calling them out for it, that you that are genuinely walking by the Spirit who have the benefits of the fruit of the Spirit, like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, you who have those characteristics, that's who should be restoring that person. Because if a fleshly person goes after that fallen person, they're going to eat them up. They're going to make everything worse. They're going to castigate them and tell them how bad they are and that God probably hates them now because of their trespass and the way they're living. It takes somebody who has self-control to be able to confront somebody in kindness and in gentleness of spirit and also at the same time instruct them in the way that they are supposed to walk as a Christian person. I heard this example years ago and proved true in my life. The example that I heard from Brian Chapel years ago was he said when he was conducting marriage counseling with people who were married who were in trouble, they would come into his office and they would ask him, you know, what are you going to suggest for us? Our marriage is in deep trouble and we're at the point where we're going to split and And he said, for years, all he knew to tell people was, well, do better. That's all he had for it, just just do better. It was always some version of do better. He said, and then it occurred to me one day that they were doing the best they could. If they could do better, they'd be doing better. They're now doing as good as they can. He said, in my whole attitude toward confronting sinful people, broken people, people in broken marriages, my whole attitude changed. And I realized that what I needed to remind them of was who they are who they are in Christ, what Christ had done for them, how Christ had forgiven them, how Christ had redeemed them in order to encourage them in kindness, in gentleness, in order to encourage them to be Christ-like, knowing that if they both pursued Christ-likeness and walking by the Spirit, that that would naturally improve their marriage because they would both be sacrificial toward one another. Okay, now that example is a perfect example of what Paul is saying here. It takes people who have the spirit of God, who are walking by the spirit of God in a spirit of meekness. Those are the people who ought to be confronting people who are caught in a trespass or a sin, who are fallen or who are hurt. It takes somebody who has the spirit of God in order to instruct them and bring them along in the Spirit of God, in the reminder of what it is they believe, what Christ has done for them. That's the only way that you're going to restore somebody back to Christ. You're never going to do it by yelling at them, Do better. And yet, I guess it's hardly worth saying, so much of modern Christianity is a version of Do better. Paul says, brethren, even if a man is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. And then look out for yourself, lest you too also be tempted. Now this word restore, the Greek word I believe is kataridzo, Technically, it means to complete thoroughly, to finish something, to not leave something undone, so to frame something, to mend something. It's actually a word that was used in secular Greek for setting broken bones. And so in the New Testament, it's the same word that's used for mending fishing nets. And so it takes a spiritual person To put a broken person or a torn, ripped person, to put them back together again, it takes somebody who has genuine patience, but also someone who understands, if not for the grace of God, that'd be me. That's how you can have patience with fallen people, is recognizing that you yourself are just as temptable That you're not better than them just because you didn't fall for that particular sin. You know what your sin is. You're going to go back and fight your sin. And they're fighting their sin. And you need to bring them along in the cause of Christ. In a spirit of rebuilding and mending those people. That's what it is to restore them. So then verse 2 is very like that. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. How is that fulfilling the law of Christ? Tom, do this. Turn to Galatians 5.14 and the rest of us are going to turn to John 13, 34 and 35. Turn there for a moment. John 13. Tom is going to read Galatians five. 14, and we're going to talk for a moment about the law of Christ as opposed to the law of Moses. This is very specific language. It's not an accident that Paul, when he was accused of being an enemy of the law of Moses and being lawless, he argued, I'm not lawless, I'm just under the law of Christ, the nomos, I'm under the teaching and instruction, the guidance of Christ rather than the guidance of Moses. And so having made that distinction, Tom if you would read Galatians
1: 5:14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement you shall love your neighbor as yourself.
2: And then look at John the rest of us chapter 13 look at verse 34. Jesus here talking, this is predicting, this is just as he's predicting his own betrayal just after the Lord's Supper. Verse 33 says, little children, I'm with you just a little longer and you will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, I say now to you also where I am going, you cannot come. But since he's leaving, he says, and now a new commandment I give you. That is so fascinating to me. Number one, he equated himself with God yet again. I mean, who gets to give commandments? God gave the ten commandments on Mount Sinai. There was no question that it was Yahweh that provided those. And now Jesus says, and now I'm going to add another. I'm going to give you a new commandment. This is establishing what is called the law of Christ a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Okay, so herein is love. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us and sent his only son to die for us. So how did Jesus demonstrate his love? He sacrificed himself to save us from the wrath of God. That's a massive amount of love. Mm -hmm. That he was willing to be whipped and tortured, knowing he was personally innocent, that he would be scourged, that he would wear that crown of thorns, that he would take nails through his hands and feet and bake out there in the hot sun till he cried, Why have you forsaken me? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That's astounding love. That's all I'm driving at is that's amazing, overwhelming love. And then he says, love one another the way I loved you. Love one another. That's the standard. The standard he has set in his law, in his commandment, is love one another the way I loved you. I loved you sacrificially. So now, sacrificially love one another. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And then he says, in verse 35, right behind that, by this will everybody recognize, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have that kind of sacrificial love for each other. So I'm going to do it first. I'm going to show how it's done. You as my disciples, go do it. And it's going to be so different if it's done the biblical way, if it's done the Christ way, it's going to be so different from the way the world acts that everybody's going to recognize it in you. And say, what is different about them? Well, clearly, they've been with Christ. Otherwise, they would not love this sacrificially. Notice what he did not say, by the way. There are many things these days that Christians claim are the acid test of genuine Christianity. He didn't mention any of those. Like he didn't say by this will all men know that you are my disciples by your absolute adherence to uh, every fine point of doctrine. He didn't say that. He said by your sacrifice for one another, by your love for one another, by the way that you care for each other. Okay, that's the law, the nomos, the teaching, the instruction of Christ. You get a feel now for what the law of Christ is? So then naturally, Paul, in Galatians 6, could say, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Yes, if you would lift one another's burdens, by the way, the Greek word is baros, it means to be weighted down, technically, to be crushed down, so it's it's a burden you're carrying that's an extremely heavy burden. And then he says, come alongside one another and lift that burden together. I like the phrase, a burden shared is half the burden. That's true. If somebody comes along and helps you through your burden, Notice also then that he said people who fall into a trespass or a sin, those who are caught by their own flesh and caught up in sinfulness, are carrying a heavy burden. And so then fix them, restore them, repair them by coming alongside in a spirit of meekness and gentleness and therefore restore them and bear one another's crushing burdens. And this way you fulfill the law of Christ, which is sacrifice for each other. Look, if I see you carrying a crushing burden, my flesh says, get away, get away fast. Maybe they didn't see you. Don't get involved. That was way too many people smiling and nodding at me. (laughs) I hope I never have a crushing burden and count on you. Wow, (laughs) But... The opposite of the fleshly natural tendency is what Paul says we are to do because it is a sacrifice. And that's the important part. Things that are comfortable, things that are easy, are not a sacrifice. The expectation is that you would sacrifice yourself for the good of someone else. Do you think that the sacrifice that Christ proffered was easy on him? Was that a day in the park? No, that was a difficult period of time for him. Okay, and then Christ likened that to how you're supposed to love. You're supposed to love sacrificially because it's going to be difficult. It's meant to be difficult. It's meant to take something out of you, to build character in you, to show you how to come alongside other people and be a help to them. So now Paul is truly, genuinely putting shoe leather on the concept of what it is to love one another. And then he reminds us in verse 3, for if anyone thinks he's something, remember again the context, the Jews have come to Galatia and they think they're something, And so they start telling the Galatian Gentiles, you know, we're the circumcised ones. We're the sons of Abraham. We're the ones that keep the law. You have to be more like us if you want to truly be saved. You have to be circumcised. You have to keep the law. They think they are something. Paul's warning is, for if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. He's lying to himself. He thinks he's... Has anybody met anybody ever who really thought he was something? When you could see right away... No, you're not not all that that you think you are. You're, You're just not. So why is he convinced he is if everybody else can so obviously see that he's not? Well, it's because he's deceived. He's delusional. He thinks he's really something. So Paul says... Look out for each other, bear one another's burdens, and if when someone is caught in brokenness, when someone is caught in their sin, in their trespass, when someone is caught like that, if you confront them and start talking about do better or be like me, Well, then you are delusional because you have taken on the standpoint of I'm really something. Be more like me. But the truth is, all of us collectively are nothing. We got nothing to brag on. We got nothing to boast in. Our boast is in Christ. The finished work of Christ is the only place that we can point somebody to. You don't point broken people to yourself. You point broken people to Christ. Verse 4. You know, last week as I was finishing up, I heard myself say that the reason I don't chase people around in order to point out their sin, tell them how bad they are, is because I got enough to do with me. I recognize my own failures and inabilities. Well... I get that idea from Paul right here. But let each one of you examine his own work. Check your own flesh. Look at your own life. Before you walk around judging everybody else in this delusional perception that you're really something, and they're a failure, and they need to be more like you, check yourself but let each one examine his own work. And then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. Remember the context. The Jews wanted to boast in the fact that they had converted the Gentiles and got them circumcised and got them keeping the law. They were ready to boast about that. And Paul is saying that they should deal with their own problems, their own sin. And in fact, he has already said that those who are walking by the flesh and keeping the law, those are the ones who are not saved, not the ones who are walking by the spirit and walking by Christ. So, of course, he could say they need to examine themselves. You need to examine yourself and let each one examine his own work And then he'll have some reason for boasting in regard to himself alone. He doesn't get to boast about somebody else. By the way, that word boast there, kakema, I think is the Greek word, if I'm saying it correctly, is a boast in either a good or a bad sense. There is a good sense of boasting, and that's what Paul is talking about here. Usually when we see the word boasting, we think of it as a bad thing, like some kind of sinful pride, you know. Chest out, boasting about how good I am. But it can also be used, and the way Paul is using it here, is as a positive boast. Boasting in Christ, in what God has accomplished in you. Here, let's clarify it using Paul's words. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So turn backwards, you'll be in the Corinthian letters, and go to the very beginning of 1 Corinthians 1. And we're going to start reading at verse 25. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. If you are called by God, he just puts you in the category of the foolish things of this world. Can I get a witness? Consider your calling, that not many wise have been called according to the flesh, not many mighty or noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world in order to shame the wise people of this world. And God has chosen the weak things of the world in order to shame the things which are strong. God has chosen the base things of this world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are. Does it sound like you're anything yet? So far, you're described as shameful things and weak things and not noble things, not mighty things. Verse 29, here's the reason that God chose the things that are not, so that he can nullify the things that are. He did that so that no man should boast before God. But by his doing, by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. That's where you got your wisdom. That's why you know anything. And he became righteousness and sanctification and redemption for us. So when God met you, you were weak and foolish and despised. You were the nothing of this world. So you got nothing to boast about in terms of your own flesh, your own strength, your own money, your own nobility. You've got none of that. The ones that God called are the ones that put to shame, that, that prove the nothingness of the strong and the rich and the powerful of this world. And why did he do it that way? So that no one would boast before God because it is by God's doing through Christ Jesus that you became wisdom from God and righteousness from God and sanctification from God and redemption from God. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Okay, Paul just defined what he means by boasting. What he means by boasting is boast in the Lord. Boast in what God has done in you. You. You get a feeling for that? You. You. Come on, you. That's who God is working through. The nothings of this world so that he can confound the somethings of this world. So if you're going to boast, you boast in him. Now back in Galatians 6. So then you examine your own work. Here, I'll make it easy on you. Do any of you remember old you? Previous you? Remember what you were like? Does it wake you up nights screaming? (laughs) It should, because old you sinful you, depraved you, that were going your own way, doing your own thing, not caring about the things of God. The only reason you've been changed, the only reason that you have any sense of who God is, the only reason that you know today the sinner that you are, the only reason that you know you need a Savior is because God himself has been remarkably kind to you, opened your eyes, took out your heart of stone, gave you a heart of flesh, has redeemed you and given you the wisdom, the understanding that he has done all of that for you. So when you look at old you and you look at new you, you examine your own life. You examine your own work. You examine who you are and what you used to be. And then, then you boast. And that boast is about what God did for me. Not what I did, I'm so strong, I'm so powerful, I'm so noble, dig me. No, the only boast we have is to boast in the finished work of Christ and in God who saved us. So then each individual will be able to deal with his own sin, his own worries, and he'll only be able to brag about what God did for him and be boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to someone else. For each one of us shall bear his own load. By the way, completely different Greek word than we saw earlier. The reason that I took the time to tell you about the crushing weight was because this is a completely different word. This is the word that is used as uh, like the, the pack that a soldier carries. It's a load on your back that is basically your life. That's the load you carry with you, your own conscience, your own awareness of who you are and where you've been, and your own awareness of where you're going. You carry that with you. And so each person carries his own load, carries his own sense of who he was and what he used to be like, and then he boasts in Christ alone for having saved him and redeemed him and brought him along. It is in that context of putting shoe leather on what it is to walk out your spiritual life. It's in that context of caring for each other, lifting each other up, carrying each other's crushing loads, sacrificing for one another. It's in that context that he then says, and let the one who is taught the word share koinonia in all good things with the one who teaches him. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this will he reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from his flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit from the spirit shall reap eternal life. And let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So do not be deceived. God is not mocked. And the one who is taught the word is to share materially in all good things with him who teaches. Now, up until this moment, Everybody in the room and everybody online has been agreeing with me on everything I've said about how we need to care for each other and how we need to walk in the spirit and how we, need to, how we need to lift each other's crushing burdens. And Everybody's been agreeing and saying, yes, that's right. Yes, that's what the word says. Right. And then we hit the line about money and people are like, oh, now you've stopped preaching and you've gone to meddling. Why would you have to bring that up? I didn't bring it up. Paul did. And he brought it up within the context of sacrifice. Because giving is supposed to be sacrifice. And he said to share materially in all good things with the one who teaches you. I got 10 minutes left this morning. So we may carry this subject over to next week, too. But... Let me just walk it out for you for just a moment. Tom tells me that this particular summer, in our 22 years of existing, has been a particularly tough summer where giving is concerned. And I get it. The economy's getting bad. Everything is more expensive. And usually then, the place that takes the hit is the church. And I get it. In fact, I've known ever since I was working for the church in Los Angeles, we knew that there were certain times of year, Christmas and midsummer, where the giving was going to dip because people went on vacations or they were buying Christmas gifts. And so you knew that was coming. We knew summer was coming. But it's been, it's been a little more severe this year, probably because of the economy. So I get it, I understand, the only thing I can't do is change what the word says. You'll notice that Paul does not say an amount. He just says, share materially, all good things. Koinonia, joint participation in all good good things. Now, I don't expect a Learjet, but in Paul's thinking, all good things would be clothes and food and what it takes to get to the next city and continue preaching the gospel those would be the all good things some shelter, the ability to keep going and I'm sure that that's what he means so for all the preachers out there who have managed to get jets off this verse that's not what Paul was talking about he's talking about proper provision taking care of now There are people who are listening to us online, and uh, I think if you've listened to us more than twice online, the reason you've come back again is because you learned something. That's why you dialed it up again, because you learned something. According to Paul, you owe us, because you're being taught in the Word, and therefore, You're supposed to be sharing. I get emails every so often from folks who say, I've been listening to you for five, seven, ten years. And I thought I'd introduce myself and say hi. My first thought is, well, that's nice. Great, you've been listening to us for ten years. Good for you. I'm glad you're doing that. My second thought is, where you been? And have you ever helped us? I mean, if you've been listening to us for 10 years and haven't ever helped us, why? Why not? You've been riding on the backs then of people who have been keeping us alive. These last couple of months, were it not for a couple of generous gifts, one of which Tom told me about today, if it weren't for a couple of generous gifts, it would have been a real struggle this summer. But... God's been faithful to us. God's been good to us, and he is our provision. And my attitude has always been that giving is a matter of exchange of value. The reason that you have those shoes, you don't have your fancy cowboy boots on. And I was going to use them as an example, and, and, I, and you got flip-flops. Yeah, all chewed up from the dog. Uh, all chewed up from the dog, okay. But at some point in your life, you saw those, and you said, I need those i got to have those. And then you looked at what the price was. And you paid that price because you wanted those shoes. That's an exchange of value. Same thing with what we're doing here at GCA. If you value what we're doing, then support it. Then help us do it. The same way that Paul expected help in his work, then we expect help in this work. Paul elucidates on this to a much greater extent, in the book of Corinthians. I'll kind of speed through this, and we'll call it a morning. The folks in Galatia were apparently more willing to listen to Paul and uh, act on the things that he said. The church at Corinth was just a mess. And as I've stressed before, Paul wrote two, probably three letters. We just only have two of them. He makes reference to yet another that we don't have. And at the end of the second letter, he says, and I'll deal with the rest when I get there, because it was really a mess. And so because it was such a difficult church, he had to really instruct them in greater length about uh, giving and about proper giving, while at the same time not taking any money from them personally (sighs) because he didn't want them to be able to say, well, we gave to Paul, so therefore we have some kind of call on Paul, or what he teaches, or or we made Paul rich. Instead, Paul said, I expect you to give to the saints in Jerusalem... Because Paul's thinking was the saints at Jerusalem are the reason that Christianity exists in the whole rest of the world. You wouldn't have Christianity come to you in Corinth were it not for the fact that the saints who are suffering in Jerusalem have stood up for Christ even though they've been put out of the temple, even though they've been persecuted by the Jews, they nevertheless now have been impoverished for your sake so that the gospel could reach you, then you owe them. You need to take up a collection and send it via my hand to go give to them because you owe them. Well, Paul then personalized that and said, and if I share with you my spiritual things... Is it any big deal if I share your physical things, your tangible things, your food, clothes, money, whatever it takes to get through life? If I've shared my spiritual things that you wouldn't have understood any other way, then is it a big deal if I share in your stuff? So this is Paul's thinking as he's approaching the Corinthian church. Turn to 1 Corinthians again. We were just in 1 Corinthians a moment ago. Turn to 1 Corinthians. We're going to start at chapter 9. I'm going to start reading at verse 7. Actually, I'm going to start reading at verse 1 so that you can hear the context. The folks at Corinth are apparently receiving all kinds of criticism of Paul and his ministry and his actions. And people are calling him out for his actions. And so he says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So my defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have the right to refrain from working? While Paul was in Corinth, he worked as a tent maker as did Priscilla and Aquila. And he worked with his own hands to make his own money. But in a moment, he's going to tell the church at Corinth, I robbed other churches so that I could bring you the gospel freely. He still got support from churches. Who, verse 7, who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Yeah, that's, that's going to be a tough draft right there. We're going to draft you into the army, and you got to buy your own gun and provide your own food. And if we're fighting somewhere across the sea, you got to buy your own plane ticket. That's a tough sell right there. (laughs) Who at any time, as a soldier, goes to war at his own expense? Or who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these same things? For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. God's not that concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it is written because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing in the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we should reap material things from you? If others share this right over you, do not we more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right But we endure all things that we may cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. But do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? And those who attend regularly at the altar also have their share with the altar? So also the Lord directed that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel. Okay, so there's Paul's attitude. That's why he said to the church at Galatia that if they've been taught in the word, they need to share with the one who taught them. Here he says, it is the Lord who has shown in all these various types and shadows, and it's even human logic, that if someone is working in the gospel, if someone is sharing and proclaiming the gospel, that they should get their living from the gospel verse 15 but I have used none of these things and I'm not writing these things so that it may be done in my case for it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one so clearly as they were criticizing him as they were speaking against him this question of whether Paul Deserve to be supported, whether Paul shouldn't just work full-time, which is why he said, don't Barnabas and I also have the right to refrain from working? And then he argues, no one goes into this kind of battle at his own expense. So he's teaching the Corinthians how to give. This is an important point. God, to be God, has no needs. He's God. The cattle on a thousand hills are his. So he doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your clothes, your shelter, your good things. He doesn't need anything from you. He's fully sufficient in himself. So then why does the word say so much about giving? The whole Old Testament and all the animal sacrifices and all the blood that flowed, sacrifice by the way, there's that word again, all the giving and the giving and the giving and the tithes. 30% were the standard Old Testament tithes, not 10%. All of that giving was required by God in the law and stated repeatedly in the New Testament why, if God needs nothing, it has to be for you. It has to be for your good because you need to learn how to give. You need to learn how to sacrifice. You need to learn how to lift somebody else's burden. You need to learn how to be sacrificial to other people. Does that make sense? Yes. While you're in 1 Corinthians here, turn to 2 Corinthians, the very next book. 5 more minutes and I'm done. I sort of almost promise. 2 Corinthians, I believe we're again looking for chapter 9. 2 Corinthians 9, I'm going to start reading at verse 6. Paul is encouraging them to take up this offering to go to the saints at Jerusalem. And actually, starting at verse 1 of chapter 9, he says, For it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints, this giving to the saints at Jerusalem. For I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely, that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I have sent the brethren so that our boasting about you may not be empty in this case, that, as I was saying, you may be prepared, lest if any Macedonians come with me and they find you unprepared... We, not to speak of you, should be put to shame by this confidence. So Paul's kind of goading them into making sure that they're doing this offering for the saints at Jerusalem. You know, it'd be terrible since I was boasting about you at Macedonia. If anybody from Macedonia comes with me and they see that you're not actually doing it, well, then that's going to be a shame for you. And you don't want that. So get busy. So I thought it was necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift, that the same might be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly, he's talking about giving here, he who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. And let each one do just as he has purposed in his heart. I said a moment ago, you'll notice that Paul doesn't talk amounts. He doesn't say 10%. He doesn't say 30%. He doesn't say tithe. Instead, what he says is, according as you purpose in your heart. But then he assumes that you will purpose it in your heart. That as part of your walking by the spirit, you will want to give. That you will be generous and not covetous. Let each one do as he is purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. By the way, the tithe I'm just going to mention was under compulsion. That was something you had to do. So he's clearly not teaching anything like that here. He's teaching walk by the spirit and then be generous by the spirit. Because this is the only place, by the way, you hear me so often talk about our sinfulness and our depravity. This is the only place in the New Testament where you find God eulogize a type of person. And what type of person does he eulogize? Cheerful giver. Isn't that something? Out of all the qualities you might have had, he eulogizes a cheerful giver. And by the way, that word, translated cheerful, is hilaros in the Greek. Does that sound familiar? It's hilarious. Hilarious giving. People who give and are happy to give, who have joy in giving, that's the kind of person God loves, a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that always having all sufficiency in everything You may have an abundance for every good deed. So that's Paul's thinking about giving. The Corinthian church just never did quite get it, and Paul kept stepping back from that and saying, but I didn't require it of you. I didn't require it of you. I didn't require it of you. I'll just summarize the end of this. At the end of the second letter, Paul says, You got everything. I didn't hold anything back. Everything the other churches got, you got. You're you're not behind the other churches spiritually or in teaching or in doctrine in any way. You got all of it. Except for one thing. That I was no burden to you. There's that word burden again. That I didn't expect you to support me, to carry me, to take care of me. I kept saying, uh, no, no, I'll work with my own hand. No, no, I'll rob other churches. No, I'll get money from other sources so that you don't criticize me for taking up money. And then he says, only in this have you fallen behind the other churches that, that I was no burden to you. And then he says, forgive me this wrong It's one of the few places Paul ever says, I was wrong. He was wrong not to expect that he, preaching the gospel to them, would then be supported by them. Because he that is taught in the gospel needs to share materially with the one that teaches. I didn't make that up. It just exists. Now, you all have allowed me to do this job for all these years. The early years of GCA, I worked a job. I did the poll thing. I wanted the church to be secure. But then the day came where you were able to start picking up some of my expenses. And now I make my living by doing this, and I am very, very grateful for it. And I thank you for the fact that you have taken care of GCA for all these years, and by extension, taken care of me. Thank you for that. But let me remind you yet again, including our listeners on the internet, if you've been taught here, you should help us here. You got that? I know it's tough out there. It is. It's tough out there. And if you're giving to your local church, you should give to your local church. But if you're getting taught here, you also give here. That's just the way it works. Questions, comments, feedback? Anybody want to shoot me?
3: No, it's a good explanation.
2: Was that a good explanation? All right, well, thank you. Musicians, come on up.
1: Let's sing, There is a fountain.